0: This is Our American Stories, and it's time for our special presentation on the life of the most famous magician and illusionist of all time. Jesse Edwards brings us the story of the great Harry Houdini.
1: We begin the story of Harry Houdini, the most famous magician the world has ever known night of October 31st, 1936, on the rooftop of the Nickenbacker Hotel in Hollywood, California. Ten years to the day after Houdini died on Halloween of
2: 1926. Tonight, we are in the very heart of glamorous Hollywood that Houdini loved so well. He lived here. He worked here. Houdini loves Hollywood. It's a Houdini night with the spotlight of the public on Houdini. With the whole world posed to see our dear Houdini, step on this side of the curtain.
1: The great Houdini had made a pact with his wife, Bess, that he would make every attempt to communicate with her as a spirit from beyond the grave after he was dead. So every year on Halloween, The widow of Harry Houdini held a seance for him on the night of his departure for the next 10 years without ever making contact. In this, the 10th and final official seance for Harry Houdini, gold invitations were sent to some 300 guests and reporters. Lights as far away as New York were dimmed, and one minute of silence was observed as the ceremony began in prayer.
2: Now let us bow our heads. In meditation and prayer. Oh, Thou master mind of the universe, please let the spirit of understanding descend upon us that are gathered here in the inner circle tonight. We are each in his own way seekers after truth and we offer our grateful thanks to Thee. Guide us please. Amen.
1: A table with Houdini's handcuffs was set near the edge of the roof with the Hollywood sign as the prominent dramatic backdrop lit up in the distance of the Halloween night. Now, the final plea for the great Houdini to appear in spirit form.
3: Oh, thou
2: disembodied spirits, those of you that have grown old in the mysterious laws of spirit land we greet thee. It is the spirit of Houdini we wish to contact. Houdini, are you here? Are you here, Houdini? Please manifest yourself in any way possible. Take from this earnest gathering any strength that may be necessary for you to use. Take any vital thing from us that you may need to enable you to carry out your promise of years ago. We have waited, Houdini, oh so long. Never have you been able to present the evidence you promised. And now, this is a night of night. The world is listening. Harry, your world, your audience, we are crying to high heaven, to the powers that be. We are crying in one mighty magnetic voice from every corner of the earth. And the hearts and minds of mother twos are centered here tonight. We want the evidence, the truth. In the name of humanity and love, if there is communication from the great beyond,
3: come through with the
1: audience. Yet again, like ten times before, Houdini did not come through from the other side. His wife, Bess, had no other choice but to concede.
2: Mrs. Houdini, the zero hour has passed. The ten years are up. Have you reached a decision? Yes, Houdini did not come through. My last hope is God. I do not believe that Houdini can come back to me or to anyone. After faithfully following through the 10-year Houdini compact, using every type, medium, and seance, it is now my personal and positive belief that spirit communication in any form is impossible. I do not believe that ghosts or spirits exist. The Houdini shrine has burned for ten years. I now reverently turn out the light. It
3: is finished. Good night, Harry.
1: For ten years, Bess presided over these well-publicized seances. Though she stopped participating in 1938, Not a single Halloween has passed since without an official Houdini seance held by magicians somewhere in the world as homage to the great Houdini. Which is somewhat ironic, considering that Harry Houdini was well known for his efforts to debunk spiritualist mediums and psychics. He even wrote a book about it called A Magician Among the Spirits. He was a member of the Scientific American Committee, offering cash prizes to anyone who could demonstrate psychic abilities under the scrutiny of scientific observers. Houdini would debunk mediums by wearing elaborate disguises and infiltrating seances, where tricks of the trade could easily be exposed by one with such knowledge and illusions as Houdini possessed. But where did Houdini obtain this knowledge of illusions? And what drove him to such great lengths in his efforts to disprove psychics, mediums, and spiritualists? He was born in Budapest, Hungary, March 24, 1874, as Eric Weiss, the son of a rabbi and one of seven children. His family immigrated to the United States and settled in Wisconsin. Eric began to pursue an interest in magic, as his stage name, Eric Weiss, became Harry Houdini by adding an I to the last name of his idol. French magician Robert Houdini. Legend has it that young Houdini was apprenticed to a locksmith where he learned to assemble and take apart locks with his eyes closed. At 17 years old, Harry Houdini left his family to pursue his career in magic. Assisted by his little brother Theodore, Houdini began appearing in New York beer halls, theaters, museums, platforms next to snake charmers, fire eaters, and human oddities, they traveled as far west as Chicago, where the brothers Houdini did quite well during the 1893 World's Fair. In 1894, while performing at Coney Island in Brooklyn, New York, Houdini met a performer named Bess, and they were married quickly before she joined him on stage to become the husband-wife act known as the Houdinis. For the rest of Harry's career, Bess worked as his stage assistant. Yet, Houdini began 1899 adrift and discouraged. He hadn't made much of a name for himself and was trying to make a living by doing card tricks and escaping from handcuffs. He was also dead broke. A year earlier, he had attempted to sell his entire act, but there were no takers. When we come back, the Great Houdini finds success right here on Our American Stories.
0: Continue the story of the great Harry Houdini who at this point had found moderate success but hadn't yet become
1: famous his big break came in 1899 when he met manager Martin Beck in st. Paul Minnesota who convinced Houdini to concentrate on his escape acts he then toured Europe and his show was an immediate success his salary rose to $300 per week with his newfound wealth He purchased a dress said to have been made for Queen Victoria. He then arranged for a grand reception where he presented his mother in the dress to all of their relatives. Houdini said it was the happiest day of his life. In 1904 he returned to the United States and bought a house for $25,000 in New York City. Harry Houdini had arrived, but his popularity was just beginning. Joshua J. is a successful magician and respected Harry Houdini expert who joins us from the contemporary Jewish Museum of San Francisco.
4: Alright, so let's talk a little bit about Houdini in a metaphorical sense. Who is Houdini? Houdini is five foot three. He's considered at this time period an outsider, Hungarian. He's an immigrant at a time when more immigrants were coming into the country than ever before. He's a minority, he's Jewish. So already you have a lot of things that people in that time viewed as stacked against you. He was an outsider. He wasn't thought of as American. And yet, somehow, he became America's first superstar. And he really was. That's not really even a debatable statement. He was America's first superstar because although there were people who were famous actors on the stage and later in silent pictures, they were famous for portraying other people, other powerful people. Houdini was famous for who he was. And who was he? He's this small Jewish immigrant, but chains can't hold him. He can escape from anything. That's an unbelievable metaphor given the time period. This isn't a time when most people are feeling repressed. Most people are feeling like there's a ceiling to how high they can rise. Here's a man without education, without any money. It's the ultimate rags-to-riches story.
1: From 1907 and throughout 1910, Houdini performed with great success in the United States. He freed himself from jails, handcuffs, chains, ropes, and straitjackets, often while hanging from a rope inside of a street audience or out in front of a major newspaper for the extra publicity. Because of imitators, Houdini put his handcuff act behind him in 1908 and began escaping from a locked, water-filled milk can. Here again is Joshua Jay.
4: Houdini was largely known for his escapes, but truthfully, most of his escapes were publicity stunts. They were done outside in harbors to get people to come to his magic shows. So this is why he would be seen upside down with a straitjacket or doing underwater escapes, bridge jumps. But in 1908, he had a brilliant idea to bring the major escapes to the stage, and this was the one that he brought. This is the milk can escape. It's an original Houdini illusion, and this is the original milk can. He would go inside the can so only his head was emerged and then he would do something brilliant. He would say to everybody in the audience, I have here the biggest stopwatch in the world and he would bring out a big clock and he would say, I want all of you to help me warm up my lungs by holding your breath for a minute with me and he would get everybody in the audience to hold their breath, the timer would start and he would go submerge himself into the can. Everybody tries to hold their breath, 30 seconds go by and they learn it's hard. He comes up after a minute, they kick the can and and now it's brilliant because what has he done? He hasn't shown you that what he's doing is impossible like most magicians. He's shown you that what he's doing is difficult and real. And that is a way that everybody remember, even if there were 3000 people in the crowd, could understand and identify on a very intimate level the real danger that he was attempting
1: here again is magician joshua jay with the details on how exactly the milk can illusion worked
4: so this is how the illusion would work he would say after a moment of meditation i will now hold my breath much longer and he would resubmerge six assistants would place the top on the can and then lock the six padlocks on the side. A small curtain was placed around it. This was to protect the secret of his illusion, which remains a secret to this day. And then the clock would start ticking. After a minute, almost everybody in the audience couldn't hold their breath. After two minutes, the skeptics were scared. At the three minute mark, the theater manager would come out with an ax in his hand, looking very confused like this had never happened before. And of course, it happened every night, the same exact way. This is Houdini's brilliance, with orchestrating a play and playing with your emotions. At the four minute mark, everybody in the audience was shouting, mercy, mercy for Mr. Houdini. And just as he was about to break open that can with an ax, Houdini would emerge from behind the curtain, soaking wet to thunderous applause. They ate it up, they loved it. Then they'd whisk away the curtain and the padlocks were still locked. It was as if he melted through the side. Now, just because
1: this was an illusion, doesn't mean it wasn't truly dangerous. Joshua J. describes one event where it cost an imitator everything.
4: A Houdini imitator named Janesta attempted the milk can escape in 1930, four years after Houdini's death. But what Janesta didn't know is that as his crew was unloading the can, they dropped it. And we don't know how Houdini did it, but we do know that Janesta did it with a trapdoor lid, a lid that even when locked, you could escape through. When they dented the can, they stopped the method of escape. The trap door wouldn't open. Janesta didn't know this until he was underwater inside the can with the padlocks locked. No way to shout for help. No way to signal what had happened. It took his wife, who was watching the trick from the wings, three minutes before she realized something had gone wrong. She ushered all the assistants in to help unlock the can. But of course, remember, the way the trick is supposed to work, they never have to unlock the padlocks. They couldn't remember which keys went to which locks. So they got mixed up and they lost another precious minute. By the time they unlocked the can, they opened it, Genesta lived only long enough so that they could explain to him how he had been killed. Harry Houdini
1: had a few close calls himself over the years. Being buried alive was one of the most dangerous stunts that the magician ever pulled off. Assistants shackled and covered houdini with earth six feet deep trying to dig his way out he soon became exhausted and panicked while calling for help his hand finally broke the surface of the earth and he passed out in his personal diary houdini wrote that it was a very dangerous escape and that the weight of the earth is killing Houdini's daredevil behavior wasn't just for the stage, but very much a part of who he was. In 1909, he became fascinated with aviation and purchased a 60-horsepower French biplane for $5,000. Houdini made his first flight near Hamburg, Germany on November 26, 1909. Just six years after the first flight of the Wright brothers, some reports say that Houdini was the 25th person to ever fly an airplane. At a time when air travel was highly experimental, this was truly another death-defying act to add to his repertoire. Houdini was also officially recognized as the first person to ever make a controlled flight in Australia by the Australian Aerial League.
3: Harry Houdini, the great magician and handcuffed king, arrives at Bigger's Rest 30 miles from Melbourne with his international brigade, his American wife, car, and chauffeur. Brassic, his French mechanic, French Gwazen biplane, purchased through a German aviator in Germany to make history in Australia. His diary records, on my first trial flight, just after getting off the ground, I quickly flopped back to earth. I smashed machines and broke propeller all to... It is interesting to note that this box kite type airplane evolved from the box kite gliders built and flown by Hargrave of Sydney, Australia in 1893 and became a model for French airplanes for many years. A trophy was presented to Houdini for Australia's first airplane flight. Just
1: a few years later, on July 17, 1913, Houdini's mother, Cecilia Weiss, died after suffering a stroke. When news of her death reached Houdini, who was performing in Copenhagen, he fainted. It took Houdini several days to make it back to New York. The family delayed burial against Jewish custom just so Houdini could have one last look at his mother. Every day for a year he visited his mother's grave and every night at 15 minutes past midnight, the instant of her death. He lay flat on the ground, his arms embracing her grave, his face pressed close to the earth. There, he talked to her, begging her to let him know her last words. The great Harry Houdini, magician, handcuff king, jailbreaker, escape artist, daredevil, was painfully bound by his mother's death. When we come back, can Houdini escape the grasp of depression? This is our American story.
0: This is Our American Stories, and for all that we do, by the way, go to ouramericannetwork.org. Stories about everything, and in that last segment we heard about how Houdini was the 25th person to fly in the air just years after the Wright Brothers did. Go to ouramericannetwork.org and listen to David McCullough for the hour talking about the Wright Brothers, his terrific new book, The Wright Brothers, or not so new, but new if you haven't read it, and you can hear the whole story at ouramericannetwork.org. Just type the Wright Brothers in there And you'll hear David McCullough walk us through And all of us through One of the great stories of American life And now we return and continue with The epic tale of the great Harry Houdini Where he was suffering greatly Over the loss
1: of his mother After the death of his mother The great Houdini was in the throes of depression The story from here usually goes that after his mother died, Houdini attended seances in the hopes to communicate with her, and that all he found was fraud. He then set out to expose fraudulent mediums and launched into a new wave of his career as an anti-spiritualism crusader and debunker. It's a good story, The trouble is, it's just not true. The notion that his mother's death led directly to his anti-spiritualism crusade has grown to become one of the most popular Houdini myths. It would be 10 years before Houdini, unmasked his first medium. The true genesis of Houdini's anti-spiritualism crusade is rooted in his friendship with Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, author and creator of Sherlock Holmes. After World War I, spiritualism became extremely popular. Arthur Conan Doyle, who lost his son in the war, became a passionate champion of the movement.
2: Serpents and spiders, tail of a rat, call in the
3: spirits wherever they're at.
1: Although Houdini insisted that spiritualist mediums employed trickery, Doyle became convinced that Houdini himself possessed supernatural powers. Here's the voice of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle from a recording in 1930 where he describes his view of
5: spiritualism. In 1887, some curious psychic experiences came my way. And especially, I was impressed by the fact of telepathy which I proved, for myself, by experiments with a friend. The question then arose, if two incarnate minds could communicate, is it possible for a discarnate one to communicate with one that is still in the body? For more than twenty years I examined the evidence, and came finally to the conclusion beyond all doubt that such communication was possible. I could give hundreds of illustrations to prove my point. But I can only refer you to the literature of the subject. The full importance of the matter did not come home to me until the war, when all the world was asking, where are our dead boys? And getting such unsatisfactory answers, both from the churches and from science. Then it was that my wife and I felt that our knowledge on the subject was of enormous importance, and that we could answer this universal question.
1: While on the beach one day, Sir Arthur informed Houdini that his wife, Lady Doyle, had developed the power of mediumship herself and was sensing that Houdini's deceased mother wished to communicate with him. Privately, Bess Houdini had warned her husband that Lady Doyle had been peppering her with questions about his relationship with his mother, just the day before. Nevertheless, Houdini agreed to the séance. Wrap on a table, it's
2: time to respond.
1: Send us a message from somewhere beyond. During the séance, Houdini's mother appeared to return through automatic writing, a process in which Lady Doyle transcribed words from beyond onto a notepad. Immediately, Houdini could see problems. The pages were in English, a language his mother did not speak. She also made the sign of a cross on the top of the first page. Not something you would expect from the wife of a rabbi. But Houdini concealed his doubts and thanked the Doyles for their séance. Sir Arthur told the press that Houdini had been converted to the religion of spiritualism. Harry Houdini countered publicly that he had not been converted and that he was more skeptical than ever. This raised the question of whether Houdini thought the Doyles were frauds. The public exchange put a strain on the friendship and Harry Houdini began to incorporate the debunking of spiritualism. Into his stage performances.
6: There are those who would have you believe that they can foresee the future, heal wounds, talk to the dead, talk to the dead. <laughs> I've met hundreds of them. Table tappers, trumpet blowers, ectoplasmic saints. They'd rather we exercise our fantasies than our brains. I've invested years reaching across those psychic gulfs. You think I wouldn't if I could? I ache to believe. I wanted to talk to one single soul. How hard could that be? She died with one thought on her lips. For me. There are 20,000 Medians practicing today, and none have spoken those words. And I warn for my $10,000 reward, two-thirds of them have tried. If spirits are genuine, you think they'd warn us? There have been no passengers on the Titanic there have been no deaths in the San Francisco quake. If ghosts, if ghosts can inhabit any self-proclaimed Madame Zaza, why not the lower forms of life? Why doesn't your, your poodle whisper warnings about the next train wreck? Or your, your Persian, for want a murder? Why? Animals don't have bank accounts.
1: Here again is magician Joshua J with his perspective on Houdini's quest to challenge spiritualism.
4: So, you're Houdini. By this time, you've achieved more fame than probably was ever even thought possible for a magician. He's one of the most famous figures alive, but something's happened. He's getting older, right? He's famous for being a dashing, young, immigrant magician, making these escapes with young assistants showing off the physicality of his body, but now he's bordering 50 years old. He's not quite as quick on his feet and he realizes that the last part of his career will not be as dynamic physically as the first part. So what do you do? Where do you go from here? It's the same question great actors and great singers ask when they achieve so much, but now have to reinvent themselves. Well, if you're Houdini, you go on a crusade against an emerging religion Spiritualism. And I call spiritualism a religion on purpose. It's looked at today as a cult or sort of a phase in history. But at that time period, people believed in spiritualism as a faith. And he was very close to his mother, as I've told you. When she died, he wanted more than anything, like all of us do when we lose somebody, to get in contact with her. And there was a particular incident in which he was told that he would, and he was told he had made contact with his mother, and it was a scam. He realized very quickly that the same techniques he was using to deceive the public, they were using to deceive people for real. And he went on a crusade against spiritualism.
1: When we return, the infamous death of the great Harry Houdini, plus the only known audio recording of his voice in existence. This is Our American Stories.
3: From last Halloween Awaken the spirits With your tambourine we'll and
2: Toads in a pond Let there be music From regions beyond Wizards and witches Wherever you dwell Give us a hint by ringing a bell.
0: And we continue with the closing segment on the life of the great Harry Houdini. And now we hear from famous magicians of our time about the life of this epic entertainer. But first, we hear the voice of the escape master
1: himself. On October 29th, 1914, the audio was recorded on an Edison wax cylinder and is now the only known vocal recording of Harry Houdini to exist. The recording captures Harry Houdini delivering an introduction to his Chinese water torture cell escape. The audio allows us to hear Houdini's measured cadence and careful enunciation.
3: Ladies and gentlemen, My original invention, the water torture cell, although there is nothing supernatural about it, I am willing to profit the sum of $1,000 to anyone who can prove that it is possible to obtain. of the tortoise cell when I'm locked up in it in the regulation manner after it has been filled with water. Should anything go wrong when I'm locked up, one of my assistants walks to the curtain ready to rush in, demolishing the glass. Allowing the water to flow out in order to save my life. Harry Houdini, October the 29th, 1914. Blackbridge, New York.
1: World-renowned street performer and magician David Blaine tells the story of a befriended librarian at an early age who introduced him to a book that would set the course for his highly successful career in magic.
0: It was called The Secrets of Houdini you know at the age of five when you see a man chained up sideways to the side of a building straight jacket looking really scary you don't forget that and I started looking through the book and I started seeing all these amazing things that he was doing and what I liked about what he was doing is you could very easily tell from the pictures that he was doing things that were real so it wasn't like an illusion or a magic trick even though he employed that into what he did but what the guy was doing was clearly real and physical and dangerous and it was the things that I think are amazing to this day.
1: Chris Angel is another highly successful and popular magician and illusionist who was directly influenced by the great Harry Houdini.
7: He was more than a magician or an escape artist. He was a provocateur. He was somebody who was popular culture. He was by all means the biggest star of his era and um, I think Part of his success came because he understood what the public wanted, and even more so, understood how to create that interest. I always said that if you cut Houdini with a knife,
1: blood wouldn't come out. Press would. He was a master at that, and uh, that inspired me. Magician, illusionist, and comedian Penn Gillette is famous for his work as half of Penn & Teller. There's a fascinating thing about Houdini.
8: Uh... Deeply fascinating in that I can't think. You try to maybe sort of put Bob Dylan in this category, uh, but it's very hard to think. You can maybe sort of try to try to sneak in Picasso, try to sneak in Miles Davis, but trying to find someone who in their career made a philosophical or moral change while they were famous. Um, someone who has come out and redefined themselves in a moral way. Houdini became hugely famous as an escape artist, saying to a nation of immigrants, a man born in Budapest, and then standing. I mean, there's a picture of Houdini in in Times Square hanging upside down in a straitjacket with a whole sea of men in hats. The picture makes me cry every time. And then Houdini's publicity statement, I defy the jails of the world to hold me. I mean, can you imagine a more heavy, more, I mean, from a rabbi's son from Budapest. I mean, is there anything more uh, uh, purely American than that? He gets to be a superstar as an escape artist. He gets himself into dictionaries as an escape artist. We look back on the 20th century in 100 years and look at um, entertainment. The only two people in the running for being remembered in the 20th century are Elvis Presley and Houdini. And as time goes on, Houdini's winning.
1: When Harry Houdini and his entourage arrived at the Garrick Theater in Detroit, Michigan on October 24th, 1926, he was running a fever. Two days earlier, Houdini had been resting in his dressing room prior to a show in Montreal when a college student named J. Gordon Whitehead approached him. It's difficult to determine exactly what happened from here as accounts from eyewitnesses are slightly conflicting. However... The general story seems to be that Whitehead asked Houdini if the claim that he could withstand any punch to the abdomen had any truth to it. Houdini assured him that it was true and gave him permission to see for himself. Whitehead immediately took several jabs at Houdini's midsection while the magician supposedly didn't have a chance to prepare for the blows from over-exuberant Jay Gordon Whitehead. The punches inflicted more pain than Houdini anticipated, yet he insisted that the evening's scheduled performance must go on.
2: And now, ladies and gentlemen, as you read in the newspapers this morning, Houdini has been challenged to liberate himself from a steel straitjacket.
1: He began the performance with several vanishing acts, culminating with making a woman disappear and conjuring a flower shrub in her place. He made it through the first act, but his condition worsened, and he was forced to finish the show. Houdini finally gave in and agreed to go to Grace Hospital in Detroit to have an emergency appendectomy. Doctors performed the surgery, but the damage was already done. Harry Houdini held on for about a week at Grace Hospital and finally succumbed on October 31st, 1926. He was 52 years old. Which is where our story ends, as it began, on the night of October 31st, 1936 on the rooftop of the Nickenbacker Hotel in Hollywood, California, ten years to the day after he died. The great Houdini made a pact with his wife, Bess, that he would make every attempt to communicate with her as a spirit from beyond the grave after he was dead. So... Every year on Halloween, the widow of Harry Houdini held a seance for him the night of his departure for the next ten years without ever making contact. In this, the tenth and final seance, gold invitations were sent to 300 guests, reporters, and Hollywood elite. Lights as far away as New York were dimmed, and one minute of silence was observed before the ceremony reached its climax at the final plea for the great Harry Houdini to reveal himself to the world.
2: Thou disembodied spirits, those of you that have grown old in the mysterious laws of spirit land we greet thee. It is the spirit of Houdini we wish to contact. Houdini, are you here? Are you here, Houdini? Please manifest yourself in any way possible. Take from this earnest gathering any strength that may be necessary for you to use. Take any vital thing from us that you may need to enable you to carry out your promise of years ago. We have waited, Udini, oh, so long. Never have you been able to present the evidence you promised. And now, this is a night of night. The world is listening. Harry, your world, your audience. We are crying to high heaven, to the powers of be. We are crying in one mighty magnetic voice from every corner of the earth, and the hearts and minds of the multitudes are standing here tonight. We want the evidence, the truth, in the name of humanity and love. If there is communication from the great beyond, come through with the evidence.
1: The evidence was in. The great Houdini had made his greatest escape from the shackles that bound him to this world to that inevitable escape. That we all make. The story of the great Harry Houdini will live on forever. This is Our American Stories.
0: And great job as always. And that's Jesse Edwards. And my goodness, when he hits it good, he hits it out of the park. And just listening to that, what a stunt Harry Houdini created for all those liars and all those false prophets. He exposed them, even in his grave, setting them up for the kill. A master at the big event. And by the way, what an American story. Born in 1894, Budapest, Hungary, son of a rabbi, a Jew, and outsiders, outsiders in his new country. And he becomes the biggest star there ever was. And again, it was pointed out early, he didn't play someone else like the Valentinos of the early movie world, Houdini played himself to the end provocateur and he understood as one person said what the public wanted the life of harry houdini what a story here on our american stories and to listen to all that we do go to our that's our american network.org This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we talk about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, from history to business, and everything in between. And we love hearing your stories. Send them to ouramericannetwork.org, and we'll take a few of them, take many of them if possible, and turn them into stories right here on the show, and put them up on the satellite so you can hear them too. Also, to hear all of our material and our best each week, our five best stories each week. Go to OurAmericanNetwork.org and sign up for our free newsletter. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org and send the link to friends. What we're doing here is special. I think you know it. Share it with friends and anywhere you can talk up what we're doing. We appreciate it and so too does your station. And now it's time for the McClellan Files where we go deep inside the life of Bob McClellan, someone that you don't know but whose life and whose voice you're certain to be captivated by.
9: While watching a movie with my wife in the family room one evening, we were interrupted by our 16-year-old son, Tommy, who walked in and sat down with us. Politely, he said he had something important he wanted to discuss with us. As I turned off the TV, I quickly imagined all the possibilities of something terrible, disastrous, or difficult that could force a 16-year-old boy to sit down to talk with his parents about anything important. My wife, with her eyes wide open, sat silently while we all got settled in to hear what he had to say. I could not remember his approaching us like this before, and my expectations, coupled with my imagination, made me feel very uncomfortable. He began to tell us about a friend whose cousin attended the New Mexico Military Institute in Roswell, New Mexico, for high school. That cousin is now a captain in the Green Berets and is teaching math at West Point. Tommy was very impressed by that and said he wanted to go there for the remaining two years of high school. He talked about the academic standing of the school, the numerous activities that were available, and the challenges he felt the school would present him. As he spoke, I was still unprepared for the ending of his story. Calmly and ever so smoothly, he discussed his desire to attend such a school and pursue a college education that, no doubt, had a military career as its ultimate destination. His mother countered with a gentle return to reason when she said, You're going to a fine private high school here in the Bay Area. Why would you want to leave all of your friends? More straightforward questions came from me like, are you unhappy or do you want drugs? He said he was prepared to leave his friends as he would make new ones at the school. And though it was a military school, he was not enlisting and would still be a high school student. He returned to talking about the courses and activities offered by the school and its academic reputation. He thought the discipline and focus would help him be more successful. It was obvious he had done his homework and it was evidence of how seriously he took this idea of leaving home, traveling and living at the school, and taking on a rigorous academic and physical regimen at 16 years of age. Young though he may be, he had reached a fork in the road in his life that his mother and myself didn't see. We asked, why would he want to be going to a military institute that sat out in the middle of the New Mexican desert? It was their reputation, he said. In their one-year cadet prep program, 97% go on to one of the military academies. Out of a total of 900 students, 90 went on to the military academies. He thought that by doing well at NMI, he could pick any college he wanted to attend and after graduation from college, become an officer. I began to suspect that he was bored living under the shady trees amidst a wealthy suburb south of San Francisco. A bedroom community offers a little excitement. Punching a time clock, working at a retail store, or hanging around with your friends, playing with your phone while living at home, is a lot less adventurous and exciting than traveling around the different places, living within a community where 30% of the student body is international. 100% our former military, and meeting the many challenges that the military presents. We reminded him that home and community are important for his development. They are nourishing, sustaining, and necessary foundations for his life. But, like bread, they can often become stale. It wasn't love or nourishment that was missing. He just needed more room to grow. Finally, I just had to get to the point. I asked him, what's this all about? I said, i got no problem with the military, but why not do ROTC in college? If you want to go in the military, why do you need to go down there and do this? There was a moment of silence and a calm, self-assured demeanor. He looked at me, and without any doubt or hesitancy in his voice, he said, Dad, I am not going to go to Stanford Business School, and I am not going to go to Harvard, and I am not going to spend the rest of my life working in an office. I want to be a captain in the Green Berets. I was speechless. There was nothing more I could say. And at that point, I was done. I was sold. He said he wanted to be an officer in the Green Berets, work in special operations, and be fluent in Arabic. He wanted to be a leader and not a follower. He had heard from his friend's cousin that these men don't need to find themselves. They do that every time they're standing in a doorway getting ready to jump out of a plane. I asked him, are you prepared to jump out of a perfectly good airplane over Nigeria? His response was a simple yes. I could see the look in his eyes were infused with his youthful imagination and romanticism. But I knew he meant it. I understood how he felt, and though I thought it was a little early, I reminded myself that after all, it's just high school, he's not going off to war. I knew, too, that regardless of how far down this path he goes, he will benefit from making this decision and will learn a lot about himself in the process. This was his decision. He looked into his own insipid life and realized that he needed to find a different path to take him to a different place. He didn't know where that place was located, but his imagination convinced him that it existed. He just had to find it.
0: And when we come back, more of this terrific story from Bob McClellan. By the way, go to the McClellan Files at ouramericannetwork.org and you can hear all that Bob does. What a terrific storyteller. And by the way, if you have a storyteller in your town that you know can just, well, hop out stories, send his or her information to us at ouramericannetwork.org because we know there are great storytellers all over this great country. More of the McClellan Files And This is Our American Stories, and we pick up where we last left off with the McClellan Files, a young man, a boy, having a dream in his head, a vision in his head of leading a team overseas in the Green Beret, and making that next important move to go to military school. Let's pick up where we last left off.
9: As a parent, I learned eventually I could not really direct my children's lives anymore. Oh yeah, I could influence or coerce them. But I was no longer the director. In this conversation with him that night, I realized I'd become a spectator. I always believed as a father that the best I could do was to prepare my children to set their direction in life and be ready to live with the success or failure of their choices. Now I would have to honor that belief. Consequences exist in the world of adults while children are protected from them. Families like ours create barriers and boundaries and walls, trying to keep out the grimmer and grimier aspects of society. But to do that, we risk becoming imprisoned inside the walls, holding on to the illusion that we are safe and in control. We sent our children to private schools, put alarm systems in our house, and were careful about who we invited into our home. But still, we know that no one is safe. We pick their friends, pick their school, and where they can go, But at some point, we can no longer be there to make their decisions or supervise every activity, place, or person that comes into their life. The point has to come where either I release him or he just jerks his hand out of mine. Troubles like drugs, teen suicides, mental illness, or just being lost living at home with mom and dad have permeated through the porous walls of his school. He sees some of his peers already making these dangers a lifestyle and it is one of the reasons why he wants to leave. These dangers may be hidden among the many tomorrows of his future. It was becoming apparent to me that Tommy is not just running to someplace, but running away from someplace. I thought my wife and I would make all of his decisions, but at some point I know we won't be there to help him. To manage these serious difficulties he needs many attributes to get him through and resourcefulness sits at the top of that list resourcefulness is an attribute that is part of the military bedrock planning for the unexpected adapting to fluid situations and working with limited resources are integral parts of military training our natural instinct at home is to nurture our children it is our duty as parents but being nurturing is not preparing them to be self sufficient and independent. Eventually, the breast runs dry and is incapable of providing nourishment for a man. The appetite becomes too large when your son is six feet tall and shaving. Without realizing it, Tommy's decision is one that will help him develop the ability to take care of himself. Wow, what a concept! Choosing for oneself which side of the wall is right for you is a decision we all have to make. Tommy chose the risk of being on the outside rather than being inside in the safety of the center. His confidence impressed me as evidence of both his desire for independence and self-reliance. Regardless of the outcome, this is his choice. If he gets down there and doesn't like taking seven classes a day and training in 100-degree heat in the desert, then that's just too bad as far as I'm concerned. I am sure this experience will teach him to be very selective about what he chooses to do in the future. He will certainly learn his limitations down there, as well as his capabilities. Video games and drugs and alcohol hold no allure or excitement for him. At NMI, he is not allowed to even have a smartphone and internet access is controlled by the school. He leaves all those attachments and appendages here at home. There is no use for them at the school. They will write letters instead and carry a flip phone. The school seems to have a policy that I embrace. Less is more. I told him that the door only swings one way here, and other than leave or come home on vacations, don't come back until you finish. He said, no problem, dad. I told all my children when they turned 18, three doors will appear in their life. The door to college, the door to the military, in the front door and they're going to go out of one of those three doors for sure and tommy he's the last to go afterwards my wife discussed the conversation with me and she asked what i thought was driving his decision my answer to her question was that he was bored a high school campus full of kids that all grew up together becomes a very small world Church for teenagers every Sunday, boy that gets routine real fast, faith eventually fades away. Teachers telling him all day what he's to believe doesn't challenge him to think for himself. He doesn't learn to solve real problems, but rather digital or paper ones. In the novel All Quiet in the Western Front, Paul Bomber exclaims to his former teacher after returning home on leave from the front lines in World War I, You never taught us anything really useful like how to light a match in the wind or make a fire out of wet wood. Sometimes it is the practical and not the theoretical education that is important. He wants to take classes to fly a plane, experience scuba diving, and rappel out of a helicopter. Run an obstacle course and learn about teamwork from teachers who spent many years in the military. He's not interested in being a digital cartoon characterization action figure. He wants to be a real one. He wants to be a Green Beret, no less. Those ideas and dreams lie far out in the future. Though they may never materialize, I am comforted that he has some starting point in his life. These are questions his mother and I have discussed with him since that night. The questions that he could not provide answers for, he told us he would find them when he gets there. It was so apparent to me that my son was becoming someone else. I could see his hunger for adventure and challenge was contained in my most favorite quote of all of literature, Shakespeare's play, The Taming of the Shrew. It introduces the hero, Petruchio, who, while riding into Padua, is greeted by a friend from his hometown, who asks, Oh, hail Petruchio, what winds blow thee to Padua? He answers, such winds that scatter young men through the world to seek their fortune farther from home where small experience grows. These are the words that help me understand my son's decision. I worry about his mother, and how she's feeling about the prospect of her son leaving home at 16. She was unprepared and not happy about a separation so soon from Tommy. Our other son Bobby had left for college a year earlier and she thought she would have Tommy for two more years. The idea of spending 20 years as a mother and then watching them leave home is a painful experience for any mom. But his desire was so credible and so sincere that she could only say yes. She said she could not be so selfish as to stand in the way of her son seeking to make his life matter at 16. She always said that she put her children first. Her commitment to that devotion puts her into the selfless position that how her children is more important than how she feels. So she is preparing herself for what will be one of the most difficult sacrifices she can make for her children. What a fine example of love that is. For me, I grew up in and served in the military as did most of my family. And though I will miss them, I accept the idea that life is a journey through a strange land, and each obstacle that's overcome becomes a transition to the next place in life. This challenge will expand the margins of Tommy's life and test his capabilities. When we finally informed Tommy that he'd been accepted and that he could go, I had a sense that I would see a lot of Roswell, New Mexico over the next couple years. I think my wife will insist upon it.
0: And what a terrific story, and as always, beautifully told and written by Bob McClellan. Go to the McClellan Files in our American Network. To hear all of his work, and by the way, again, if you know a storyteller in your town, in your city, in your community, and you know who they are, there are a few people who can just really write and tell a story. Send their names to us here at ouramericannetwork.org. That's ouramericannetwork.org. And by the way, thanks to our proud sponsors of the show, My Pillow, and that's mypillow.com to order their terrific pillows. And there's a 10-year warranty on these pillows. They're guaranteed not to go flat. They're 100% machine washable and dryable. And best of all, they're made right here in the United States in Minnesota. The founder, Mike Lindell, well, he's committed to having their operations in our country and in his hometown of Chaska, Minnesota. And by the way, my wife and I use them faithfully and fight over which is which. We often get confused and end up, well, just having arguments over who was whose. And now I'm actually, we got names on them, so that can't happen anymore. Hopefully. We'll see. That's MyPillow.com, MyPillow.com. And mention the word stories or pull the stories word down in the menu bar. This is Our American Stories, The McFallon Files. american stories and when you hear that music it's time for our final thoughts segment and that's a eulogy a remembrance of a loved one and by the way in october we also honor the lives lost through miscarriage stillborn birth sudden infant death syndrome and other such tragedies it's infant loss month all october every october in america It was declared so in 1988 by President Ronald Reagan. And for all of you who have ever experienced that kind of tragedy, I had a dear friend lose not one, but two babies to a miscarriage and the grief I witnessed. Well, it was inconsolable, her grief. And so we bring you these stories because in the end, they touch so many of our lives. And today we bring you the story of Carrie Gosling, who bravely shares her life story Her said story with us now.
7: My name is Carrie. I'm 36 years old and met my husband almost five years ago. We were married June 23rd, 2017 at the most beautiful wedding we could have imagined. Steve is three years older than I am. We knew we wanted to try to become pregnant right away and we were so excited to start a family. It worked. We considered ourselves incredibly lucky and couldn't believe that we became pregnant on the first month of trying. I had a positive pregnancy test on August 17th, 2017, and I texted my husband at work. Steve, 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 can I call you? He called me right back and I told him the news. We were shocked and excited. Neither of us has ever been married, nor do we have any other children. We heard too often from our families that we should hurry up and have kids. I'm not sure we could have went any faster. Funny how in the face of excitement, people can or will say and ask you anything. Essentially, our families were talking about and thinking about the most intimate act in our marriage, sex and making a baby. Yet here I sit, alone in our kitchen, Writing our story to strangers and a website to express my feelings, thoughts, and sadness. Where are everyone's praying questions now? When I need them the most. I receive a lot of very distant and appropriate. How are you's? But hardly any. What does your sadness feel like? Are you able to stand up in the shower? Or does the weight of your tears make you fall to your knees? When you sit for hours in your baby's room, do you cry the entire time? Do you find it difficult to get out of bed? You're still healing from giving birth to your baby. How is your pain? Death makes those closest to us so sad, so uncomfortable. They forget that only months earlier they were intimately involved in thinking about our private life. Those of you who know what I'm talking about, fellow women, it's the same with colleagues, strangers, and acquaintances, who touch our bellies when we're pregnant, who say to us, wow, you're huge, who offer their expertise in knowing if our baby is a boy or a girl, depending on if we've dropped or how fast the baby's heartbeat is. It's the same when they offer unsolicited advice on how to breastfeed, how to get the baby to sleep, to let or not to let your baby cry. All of these private topics way out in the open, open for discussion. And now, silent. Where'd you go? Where are you? You so comfortably told me how to never let my baby cry and how to breastfeed and you touched me. Now what? You're gone. Not that I want anyone near me anyway. Only my husband, who I'm not sure I could love more deeply than I do right now, who I want to protect with every fiber of my being. Let anything happen to me. Let me have all the pain. Let me have all the illness, if it means he will always be okay. Anyway, pregnancy was a breeze for 30 weeks. I was never nauseous, I was never sick. I never had GERD or reflux. In the first trimester, I had depression, and I struggled with feelings of inadequacy and fear. I was not myself. But by 14 weeks, I was feeling great. I swam one to three times a week, and I went to the gym to walk or ride the bike. I was healthy. The baby was healthy. Always normal on the growth curve, heart rate always in the 140s. Maternity 21 testing came back normal. We were breathing easy. We were preparing. We were becoming excited. The nursery came together fast, with a neutral paint color, ease in putting together the crib and the dresser and a best friend who gave us a chair and photos for the wall. We were ready. The baby shower my sister planned was absolutely perfect. Our baby received everything he or she needed and much, much more. How grateful we were to know that our baby would want for nothing. What I'm about to say will rile some of you up. It may elicit feelings of disbelief or anger, sadness, but it's my truth and I'm not sure how else to describe it. Throughout pregnancy, I never felt this connection other mothers talk about. I wasn't glowing, especially in the third trimester. I did not take baby bump photos and post them on social media. I did not document every second of pregnancy. I was excited to raise a child and to raise them to be good, to be kind. I looked forward to instilling qualities that could make them and us proud. But I did not have these natural feelings of hugging my belly or crying when he or she kicked. I write this to set the backdrop for what it felt like to give birth because it was a feeling that can't be defined or described. It's a love greater and deeper than any connection that could have been felt while pregnant. By 30 weeks, I was a different woman. How oh, the changes a woman goes through when pregnant. I never knew it. At 34 and a half weeks, I was at work, and it was around 2 p.m. I had just walked to the bathroom, and it exhausted me. I decided to check my blood pressure. I'm a nurse practitioner and understand the dangers of increased swelling, weight gain, and the risk factor of being 36 from my first pregnancy. I wish I could go back to this day. Was it something I did? Should I have never checked? Should I have taken it easier? What could I have done differently? My pressures were all above 160 over 90. One was 184 over 119. I called the OB. I was sent to the hospital. I was diagnosed with preeclampsia. The fear that was invoked when the intern told me that they might induce labor that night was so strong. Steve was perfect, telling me that we were ready, telling me we may be able to take our baby home and telling me that this was okay. I heard him, I listened to him I didn't believe any of it. They didn't induce me. They told me the goal was to get me to 37 weeks, just like all the literature recommends. They discharged me the next evening on La Beta Law and told me they'd see me in the office twice a week for two more weeks. They told me not to work. They told me I was okay. They heard the baby and told me that she or he was okay. I diligently monitored my blood pressures at home. They were all high, but I never had severe features like a headache, blurry vision, or liver pain. I felt the baby move like he or she always did.
0: And when we come back, more of Carrie Gosling's story here on Our American Stories. We return to Our American Stories and Carrie Gosling's story. She'd been diagnosed with pre a dangerous pregnancy complication characterized by high blood pressure, the doctors had sent her home on medication, and there we returned to Carrie and her husband Steve's story.
7: I'll never, ever forgive myself for feeling miserable, for complaining about my carpal tunnel, for crying in exhaustion when I couldn't sleep or breathe, For taking a bath every night. For not swimming more than I did. For not feeling that connection I should have felt when pregnant. You all will say, you didn't do anything wrong. But I'm not sure you're right. The baby was inside of me. I was responsible. How could I not feel guilt forever? Why didn't I advocate for more law? even when I was at 400 milligrams twice a day. Why was I resistant to induction at 34 and a half weeks? Why didn't I ask the ancient doctor, who I met for the first time when I was 36 weeks and one day pregnant, to be more aggressive with the non-stress test that didn't show as much fetal movement as, as it should have? He followed up with an ultrasound, and the technician told me she saw fetal movement but it wasn't a lot. I want more movement. That was just a flutter of an arm or a leg. Please. The baby is not moving as much as he or she always had. The heart rate was 130s. It was always 130s. But why didn't we wait longer to see diaphragm movement? Please. Please wait longer. Please induce me now. Why didn't I ask those things? Why didn't I insist? My next appointment was three days later. It was to be my final appointment in the office before induction four days later. I was 36 weeks and four days pregnant at this appointment. I was alone at this appointment because I chose to go alone. I wanted to receive the date in the time of induction by myself. Instead, I received the worst news of my life, alone. They couldn't find a heartbeat on the non-stress test. They left me alone in the room to see if the ultrasound technician was available. I saw what the ultrasound tech saw, or didn't see. No fluttering, tiny, sweet heart no movement. My hands flew to my face as I lay flat and unable to sit up because of my large belly. I couldn't move. I needed help. Help me. Please help me. The technician's face was filled with horror and sorrow and sadness and sympathy. She stuttered in her movement but not in her words. I'm going to get the doctor, Carrie. I was alone, again. My baby left me too. They returned together. They hugged me. They put the probe on my stomach again so the doctor could verify death. Is it because I took so many baths? I sobbed. No, Carrie, no, this is nothing you did, the doctor said into my shoulder, her arms around me. It's so late, it's so late, why now? why now i'm almost 37 weeks it's so late i sobbed we know we know we're so sorry they said four arms around me now i called steve 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 i whispered carrie carrie what what's the matter are you okay what's the matter There's no heartbeats to you. The baby has no heartbeat. I sobbed. I'm on my way. I'm coming. Move that truck. I have to get out of here. He screamed at his colleagues. I'm coming, Carrie. I'm on my way. I waited the hour it took for my husband to arrive. They made a nurse sit with me. You don't have to sit here, I said, as I stared at the floor, my nose running. Yes, I do. I want to, she stared into my face. I was no longer alone. The doctor explained the process of labor, induction, and delivery of our baby to Steve and I. We went to labor and delivery, and we navigated decisions like when to call our families. Who do we call first? Do you want me to put the phone on speaker? Will you talk this time? What's labor going to feel like? I don't want to do it. Please don't make me do it. I put off induction for two hours while I fretted and we called our parents and our siblings. Everyone cried with us and told us how sorry they were. I can't remember any exact words. I struggle with memory loss in the midst of this grief. Steve has been my mind and my memory. After the placement of the epidural, the nurses helped lift my limp, heavy, swollen legs into bed and I fell asleep. I awoke at 11.20 a.m. to the greatest sense of pressure that I've ever felt. I told the nurse about it, and she asked the midwife to check my cervix. The midwife was a breath of fresh air. Her arms felt heavy and sincere and kind when she hugged me. Her eyes were sympathetic and warm. When I nervously asked, what's that mean? After she told me I was 9.5 centimeters dilated, It means you're gonna have your baby very, very soon, she said. I began to cry and my breathing hastened. No, 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 no. Please, no, I can't, I can't, I can't. Don't make me do it. I didn't say these things, they just haunted me. They still haunt me. Imagine the pain of delivering our baby and never hearing his or her cry. Never taking a first breath. Never seeing his or her eyes open. It gives me an ache that is more powerful than the most painful contraction or pressure of delivery could ever produce the nurse and the midwife explained to me how to push and what's a contraction feel like I nervously asked through pressured speech you know Carrie you've had them all night it's okay dear you're going to be okay you can start whenever you want we can wait for the doctor to get here or you can start now You tell us what you want to do. I think I want to start. Will you start with me? I think I feel the pressure. I don't know. I don't know. My eyes darting back and forth between the nurse and the midwife. It's okay. It's okay, Carrie. Let's give it a try, okay? Steve, lift her left leg for her. Now, Carrie, take a deep, deep breath and push. I screamed my way through that first push and quickly learned to hold my breath instead. At some point, about 10 minutes of pushing later, my doctor arrived from the office. I pushed for 40 minutes. At some point, I got on all fours and I pushed that way too. Steve reminds me that I also asked, is any of this even working? To which the nurse and the doctor said, oh yes, definitely, Carrie. You're doing so well. I didn't believe them But I no longer believed anyone anymore I'll never forget when the doctor took off the end of the bed My eyes widened What are you doing? You're going to have a baby on this next push, Carrie You're going to have your baby I began to cry and my breathing hastened. no, 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 please, no I can't, I can't Don't make me do it I didn't say these things They just haunted me They haunt me now she was right. I had our baby on that next push. Steve peered around my knees. He came close to my face, and he said quietly, it's a boy, and then he kissed me. I cried, I cried, I cried. I cried. now. A baby boy, a oh boy. Let me see him, let me see him. Please give him to me. Give me my baby boy. Give him to me, please. I want it. Please. Steve cut his umbilical cord. The nurse put a blanket around him, and she laid him on my chest. We named him Oliver Patrick. I cried out to the nurse and the doctor. They cried with us. Oliver never opened his eyes. He never breathed our air. He never let out the sweet infant cries that I knew he had inside of him. Oliver stayed with Steve and I for 10 hours. We held him all day, and we cuddled him all night, kissed his cheeks thousands of times. We passed him back and forth. I had time alone with him when Steve left the room to get a drink, and Steve had time alone with him when I took a 20-minute nap. I remember my eyes being so heavy, but feeling so guilty for wanting sleep. He weighed five pounds. 10.7 ounces, and he was 21 inches long. He had my husband's family's cheeks, but I think he had my nose. His lips are his own. They are too perfect to be either Steve's or mine. They are his own perfectly shaped lips. He was perfect. He remains perfect in my memory for the rest of my life.
0: And what a job, Faith. Thanks so much for that. And what a story to tell. What courage in telling it. And that's Carrie Gosling, her story. Her husband Steve's story. Oliver Patrick's story. Infant Loss Month, all October. Bringing you these hard stories. That's what we do here, too. This is Our American
6: Stories.